Today's show is sponsored by Strong DM. Transitioning your team to work from home? Managing a gazillion SSH keys, database passwords, and Kubernetes certs? Meet Strong DM. Manage and audit access to servers, databases, and Kubernetes clusters, no matter where your employees are. With StrongDM, easily extend your identity provider to manage infrastructure access. Automate onboarding, offboarding, and moving people within roles. Grant temporary access that automatically expires to on-call teams. Admins get full auditability into anything anyone does, when they connect, what queries they run, what commands are typed. It's full visibility into everything. For SSH, RDP, and Kubernetes, that means video replays. For databases, it's a single unified query log across all database management systems. StrongDM is used by companies like Hearst, Peloton, Betterment, Greenhouse, and SoFi to manage access. It's more control and less hassle. StrongDM, manage and audit remote access to infrastructure. Start your free 14-day trial today at strongdm.com slash GTC. Hello and welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 180. I'm with my colleague, Karina Cizona. Hello, and I am here with Coraline Emke. Hey, everybody. We have a great guest today. I'm super excited to introduce Toby Langell. Toby's the principal and founder of Unlock Open, a boutique consulting firm that helps organizations think strategically about open source. His clients include top companies like Google, Microsoft, Intel, Mozilla, and Airtable. Toby's a voting member of the OpenJS Foundation Cross Project Council and sits on AMP's advisory committee and on the advisory board of Oasis Open Projects. Previously, Toby served on Facebook's open source and web standards team, Facebook's advisory committee representative at the W3C, and was a W3C fellow supported by Facebook. Toby lives today in Geneva, Switzerland. Toby, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Awesome. Our tradition on this show is to start off with the question of what is your superpower and how did you develop it? I think that my biggest power, I probably wouldn't call it a superpower, but my biggest power is that I tend to bridge groups of people or tribes, if you will. I'm not super sure how I got that, except I've sort of always been somewhat of a misfit and never really liked being identified as a group sort of like labeled. So, you know, as, as a teenager, I, I was playing a lot of music and also doing rock climbing. And I would tend to wear my rock climbing t-shirts to band practice and my band practice t-shirts to rock climbing just to, you know, not be labeled. Yeah, labels can reduce us to preconceived concepts. And I can totally see not wanting to be lumped in with someone's conception of what a musician is, what a rock climber is, what a consultant is, what a standards body member is. Makes sense. You know, I would add to that 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 creates a bunch of superpowers, right? 
you know, as a result, you're like the best musician amongst rock climbers, right? That's a super, a super <laughs> power in that group, right? Um, yeah. and, and so on, right? Being uh, sort of like an open source person and standards bodies is a superpower. Uh, knowing how to code in uh, non-coding environments is a superpower, et cetera, right? So it sort of like generates all of these scoped superpowers, if you will. Coraline, before we started the call, described you as a co-conspirator of ethical open source. I'm just very fascinated by the very concept. And just as a person who's less familiar with the concept, I would like to know what that means to you and what that means to you on a day-to-day basis. I, I think that I've spent most of my lo- life chasing a place where I would fit and that would sort of fit was my own conception of the world, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and morals and, and ethics. And I really found that space when I discovered uh, music when I was a teenager. And then I sort of saw the limits of that space and kind of stumbled uh, upon programming and, and software development, which just like clicked as this sort of new world I could get into. And as I got into this world, I got really at the very beginning, again, sort of like stumbled into open source and, and, and what that movement um, meant. And it sort of like filled this gap of, of meaning for me and actually feeling that what I was doing was contributing to the greater good. And as I grew and as tech grew around, around me much faster <laughs> at a much bigger scale, than what uh, I could have uh, even imagined uh, when I first started being in, in that field. And open source grew and changed. I started to have trouble finding the same meaning and same set of values that I originally had found exciting. And as a result, I have started trying to find, well, either meaning elsewhere or deeper meaning in it or uh, trying to find, have a different perspective, um, have a different outlook to try to get back to that deeper meaning. What is the deeper meaning of open source that is attractive to you? The deeper meaning of open source and software and tech uh, in general to me is whether it actually makes society better, whether it improves people's lives. I don't see a lot of meaning um, in my personal life if I'm not working in a space that is connected to that. Yeah, so open source did feel like that for a while, like I would say probably close to a decade, uh, where it felt like I was contributing to something that was basically yeah, moving all of this knowledge, all of this, all of these assets that were being built by people, in a place where they could be used by everyone, where they be- where they where they belong to everyone, and where they were not sort of aggregating wealth and power in the hands of a few. That really, for me, that really was a convincing argument for me to be involved with that for a long time. And then the other aspect is uh, like I feel very privileged and and frankly like I am very privileged for like a number of reasons and as a result I sort of feel like I have a moral obligation to uh, be involved in these in these areas and so part of it is sort of yeah something that I feel like I have to do <laughs> you can even hear it in my tone sometimes it's like oh 
I wish that I could look at life sort of like in a lighter way sometimes and, and not feel a responsibility um, around these issues. Edmund Berkeley, um, who was an early computer pioneer and actually worked with Admiral Grace Hopper before she was an admiral during World War II. And um, he was a, a major force for bringing ethical consideration to computing. And for his entire life, people ignored him. But uh, he talked about a concept of people involved in computing having a greater than average responsibility for the impact of their work on society because computing can be such a powerful tool for either reinforcing the status quo or battling the status quo. And it sounds like your disillusionment with open source might be derived from that feeling of extra responsibility. Do you think that's fair? So I'm going to try to answer this question by sort of like take sidetracking into something that I learned from my standards. Uh, they, I spent a lot of um, time um, working in, in web standardization. So basically writing um, the specifications that document the technologies that are used to make web browsers. Um, and there's a really interesting concept in uh, the W3C, which is one of the um, biggest standardization bodies around those specifications, that is called the priority of constituencies, and which implies that if you look at all the different uh, constituencies that are touched by, uh, you know, in that case, uh, standards, web standards, um, that there are, there are constituencies that are more fragile or um, plain larger, and that have to be uh, especially accounted for. And this is really like a, a, one of the core principles, one of the core values that govern the way decisions are made in, in standard bodies, right? And and so basically what, you know, just the idea is that you focus first on the end user, the person that's actually using the software. And then, and only then, you can focus on the web developer, the person that's actually building the application, and once you've actually, uh, you know, fulfilled their needs, then you can focus on the implementer, the um, developer that's actually building the rendering engine, whether it's inside of Firefox or, or Chrome. Um, and once you've fulfilled their requirements, you can actually look at the requirements and the needs of the editors of those specifications, right? And once you've fulfilled the requirements of the editors of those specifications, then you can actually look at technical purity. So it completely reverses the, you know, sort of like very engineering driven mindset of uh, really focusing on technical purity and puts that as like the last thing you want to care about. And what you really want to focus on is people, right? And, you know, I think that having spent a lot of time in standard bodies and especially in, at W3C and, and the related group of, of bodies around this, so the Watwichi and uh, ACMA, that has sort of like really bled into the way I see tech in general. And it's, it's only recently that I've been really able to, well, first of all, notice that not everyone was thinking that way, which was kind of like very surprising to me. And secondly, realized that this was actually mapped really closely to my worldview. And so that, you know, this has sort of become a tool to explain what you were describing uh, currently. This relationship between and this responsibility that we have as practitioners 
towards the people we impact with our work, but don't have a say in it, right? And this is where the sort of like a priority of consequences comes from, right? It's like the end user has very little say and can do very little to influence the standard bodies or like what's in the browser, right? And so that's why when there's a conflict, when uh, there are uh, conflicting uh, needs around the specific uh, part of the te- technology, uh, part of the stack, you want to put them first. And also just a question of like the impact, right? For, I don't know, maybe for, you know, one editor, you have a uh, hundred like uh, uh, or a 10 or a hundred um, uh, implementers in the browsers and uh, maybe 10 or 15,000 developers and, you know, billions of, of end users. So you will also want to just respect everyone's time by making sure that you focus on the, the, the broader set of people. And do you think that open source falls down or that open source prioritizes the implementers over the end users? Yes, that's absolutely something that, in my mind, a transition that open source hasn't thought about and hasn't operated yet. Um, When you think about the four freedoms um, that are described in uh, around free software, uh, freedom zero is you know, entirely focused on being able to run software yourself. Uh, And the truth is the reality of what human beings live today is that they're constantly being impacted and influenced by software that they're not running. Um, That software that, you know, they might not even be not aware. They might not even be aware that it is running. Right. Uh, if you're, I don't know, picked in the lottery for something by software, like you have the end result, right? You don't know that you were at some point like a data point in a computer running software about you. Um, and when you're using software as an end user, most end users today are using software that they're not really running themselves in the sense that you would have been running software two or three decades ago. Right. If you're using a, a SaaS online, it is not the same thing that if you were, uh, you know, running this same software on your laptop. Um, if you're using WhatsApp to send a message to your family, it is completely different than, uh, you know, running a command line tool on your own computer. And open source is still reasoning about this very much in terms of nothing has changed in three decades or two decades. So, you know, like a long time, right? We've seen an explosion of, um, of software, like everything is software everywhere. And we haven't changed the way that we think about how software impacts the world. It's very different when software impacts the person actually running the software and when it impacts like a slew of people sort of downstream. Um, and so if I want to go back to the concept of priority of constituencies for this, the priority of constituency includes end users and includes people building on top of the web platform. And then includes implementers, people actually building the browsers. And the open source movement only thinks about the implementers. It doesn't think about anyone that's downstream of that. And because it doesn't think about that, or because it, well, I mean, it does, but it's like not integrated in the model or framework to think about stuff. It 
sort of has this weird thing where you can think either about technical purity or about like the actual person running the software. And that's the only two constituencies that exist in that field. And yeah, I think that in 2020, that's a terrible problem. Yeah, like I'm thinking about, I don't know, someone like my mom, my dad. I think like if you talk to my dad, he would definitely have plenty to say about like what's wrong with corporations in this country. But telling him that like, oh, actually, you can run Linux on your on your laptop and then you don't have to have any Microsoft products at all. Like that's completely meaningless to him because maybe he could, according to these, you know, freedoms that you're talking about or Stallman's talking about, right? But he doesn't have the ability to do that. He doesn't have the knowledge to do that. I mean, it's like, are there a set of freedoms for the rest of us? Right. It's a super privileged position to have, right? It's like, you know, if you want freedom, well, you have to have this extremely deep understanding of how software works um, and the time to actually run your own stack, right? This is not the reality. And because we ignore the reality, uh, we basically ignore the reality of like 95% of the people. And that's not fair and that's dangerous. And, you know, we can and should do better. Yeah. So one example that I would like to give about this, I mean, this attachment to technical purity that we as engineers tend to have all the time, like it, it's it's sort of like something that we fall back into if we don't pay attention, has real consequences and real impact on people at levels that are unexpected, but still, uh, yeah, very impactful. And one of, one example that comes to mind is from a security perspective, if you look at software. It, it is very common to think, or at least it was for a long time. This is like starting to change. It was very common to think about security as uh, from a very binary perspective, uh, either like someone has access to a device or it doesn't. Um, and one of the examples that I saw about that when it was at Facebook was I was very concerned about the fact that um, a lot of what Facebook enabled was spouses spying on each other's account. Right. Because it was fairly easy to do when things weren't like in properly encrypted inside of like the web browser's local storage. And that was perceived by people that I brought it up was as a non problem because from a security perspective, from a technical purity aspect, well, if you have access to um, the device, like everything's, you know, gone anyway. Right. There's nothing you can do about this. And if you think about that, from that perspective, that's true. In practice, however, a spouse uh, trying to spy on uh, their spouse is something that's actually very common. Back then, I think I had uh, done a, uh, just like a Google, a Google search to, to see if this was a common thing. And like the number of pages that actually like were like linked to answering a question of how can I spy on my spouse in, on Facebook? There were like 50 millions of them, right? So it was just like it's it was a thing people were doing, actively doing, and it was just not thinkable to address that from a security perspective because it was that perspective was driven in like t the technical purity aspect, right? There was no thinking of, well, you know, the attacker, you know, quoted, right? 
the attacker was not a professional uh, security person, right? It was not like a software developer. They were just doing like, you know, a, a number of very basic steps that they would um, find online, right? And because we were looking at this from a purity angle, there was no room to address uh, that problem. Like it's been addressed since because people have sort of like grown up from, from, from that perspective. It wasn't something that we could consider. Recently, we've seen a huge amount of uh, critiques um, around the security um, and the safety of using Zoom, right? As the you know, as, as people have moved really quickly from um, to remote work um, and confinement, uh, they've relied on these tools a lot more than uh, before, and a number of uh, security concerns have popped up. An answer that I've seen to the security concern has been, well, just use open source tools, right? Turns out that I have kids and that, you know, they're just like at the age where they start to dig into things a bit more than they I probably would want them to. And so um, I double checked what um, the school wanted them to use, which was an open source solution. So I was just like, you know, that's like an open source solution is great. That sounds great. And that open source solution had a ton of safety issues, right? None of them were security issues, but they were all safety issues. Like they were like, you know, it was like end-to-end encrypted, right? Wonderful. But you could, you know, you, you could have people jump into your call if you hadn't picked uh, a long enough character string to uh, make your, 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 your room secure, right? It was full of like issues like this. Uh, that were really problematic for end users, right? I uh, actually filed a bug against it, like a against the software, like now, like close to two weeks ago, and nothing has happened, right? And whenever I've actually talked about this with people that were proponent of open source against Zoom, the reaction has always been, well, uh, use open source software because it's better. Uh, use open source software because it's not proprietary. It's not like, uh, you know, it's actually end-to-end encrypted. And it has all of these exciting feature sets, but there is no think deeper thinking around the actual safety aspect in the end user. And it's as if the fact that it was open source was by itself sort of like a get-out-of-jail card. And, you know, in itself, it's like, that's enough. And whatever is not open source is rejected, right? And so it creates this really weird conversation where, where of course, I would rather have an open source and safe tools, you know, an open source and safe tool. But because we have this sort of weird perception of open source as ethically sufficient by itself, we no longer can think about broader ramifications of the software that we use. And we end up with safe, but potentially surveil proprietary tools on one side and tools for techies on the other. And that's a silly place to be in. And it doesn't need to be that way. I think not only silly, but endangering when we talk about security versus safety i think we also have to talk about sort of flavors of safety you brought up zoom and what we really discovered pretty fast as all of the world suddenly was using it at once and exploring what it is there was talk about you know 
children, classrooms were using this. And even if the teacher was in some way locking down access, I think there's the, the sort of psychological safety is an aspect there as well as like children are not used to having their mistakes along the way, the process of their learning being able to be seen and recorded outside of their classroom. It's not just their teacher and, you know, their fellow students. What is the safety in that? Even if they're safe from active harassment, there's this really big change in what they can trust in, including can I trust in the teacher? I saw an interesting example that's not with children, but people finding out that the classroom software for, say, adults allows often for the instructors, the TAs to see every keystroke happening in real time or to see, and Zoom has this too, so-called attention tracking where they can see your eyes are not looking directly at the screen for several seconds. And there's an imposed meaning on these things. There's the assumption that if you're not looking at the screen, it means you don't care, you're not hearing, you're mentally not engaged. Personally, when I'm thinking real hard, oftentimes I'm looking up. Um, I am mentally engaged. But all of these things are imposing meaning that is unsafe, I think. And when you talk about technical purity versus security versus safety, I think we even have to go one beyond that, the difference between physical safety and mental safety. And what does that mean and how that involves self-censorship, which circles back to the four freedoms. If you're not free to express yourself in the context that you're used to or should have freedom, then shouldn't this be like a fifth freedom, freedom from self-censorship? I mean, you talked about the freedoms really being from a technical standpoint and leaving out the users. And I think this is an example of how something that was decades old created by people who are relatively free from harassment and none of them are children didn't anticipate where we are today. There's a lot to unpack here. My answer to this is part of a deeper problem that arises very often when you talk about this and to which I have utterly and completely failed to find a conclusion so far, which is um, that there is a temporality to things which makes everything very complicated. An example was COVID-19. There's been a number of health players that have decided to open source during the epidemic a, uh, for example, design for their respirators, right? Depending on what your perspective is, this is really good or really bad. And it's, it's very complicated to actually decide which one it is. And I don't have the framework to be able to do that. But let me explain why it's good. Uh, Obviously, like, you know, this lets a number of other players uh, step in right away and build uh, ventilators using a tried and true, you know, system and ship ventilators that are uh, dearly needed by people that just literally cannot breathe, right? So this is really good. Now, another way of looking at that is this could also be a strategy from a company to prevent a truly open source solution, one that is not, uh, you know, frame scoped in time to exist and be adopted by, you know, the overall industry. And so make sure that ventilators 
as a whole are things that belong to the commons and not a company in particular. And so you have this tension between are we trying to kind of put scotch tape around the current problem or are we taking sort of like a longer view? And to some degree, both perspectives have ground, right? Like you know, there is like sense in both of these perspectives. And, you know, safety issues around the open source that you, that you were just bringing up are fall in that in that same category for me, which is, uh, well, right now we have all of these kids that need to be able to continue going to school. And so, you know, my first reaction here is to make sure that they're in a safe environment from like immediate like harassment when they do that. But at the same time, the impact of sort of saying, yeah, you're safer using Zoom right now than sort of like using, uh, you know, this open source solution that's not really ready to be deployed at that scale is also going to make Zoom sort of the norm and that open source solution less successful. And as a result, you're creating more long-term problems around privacy and surveillance and all of that. And frankly, like the only reaction I have to this is that that is somewhat exhausting. Yeah, it's definitely wider scope than simply, does someone have access to this information? Yes or no? There's a lot more questions implied when we think about who are the users, who are the potential users. Zoom talked about the fact, well, we only anticipate this being used for corporate purposes uh, those are the only problems we were looking to solve, and we expected that there'd be IT departments who would deal with all that, not end users. They did exactly that. They were thinking about one kind of usage, and then suddenly it was being used for a lot of other things. Going back for a moment to children, I'm thinking about things like now they're being it's being used for things like playgroups or the equivalent of going out to recess, places where normally the par- the parent and the teacher had no you know, they weren't listening to those conversations at all. And suddenly not only are kids having that exposed, but they're conversations that are unusually intimate. People talking about death, talking about certainly in New York, a whole lot of kids are being impacted very directly, their family or a family of their friends, and having to have those conversations. Around 9-11, there was that same uh, conversation without the technology so much of you know, kids need to stop learning for a while and just deal with how they're feeling about all this stuff. So we had a use case that we already knew about from 9-11. And we've had enough time and distance to anticipate those things. And yet we still haven't. There's still a lot of assumptions about we have one kind of user and that's okay. Um, or we don't need to think beyond this. We don't need to ask questions. And when you talk about having a hard time at Facebook with getting people to address questions, even when you very specifically raised questions, um, not just, hey, we should think about other things, but can we talk about this very specific thing of spouses being able to observe each other and spy on and stalk each other? I see other examples of that, like software that's being designed to track children on their phones and being installed to track spouses on their phones. 
almost every software these days has open source somewhere underlying it. Even when it's proprietary, somewhere down deep in there, so much of the industry has been fueled by open source. So there's this remove that we're not necessarily aware of in likely not aware of in developing open source, that it's going to be far, far out there, decisions being made about it, sorry, decisions being made about it by people who don't share the philosophies at all of open source. They're not even asking those questions because it would not occur to them and they don't see it as necessary and certainly don't see it as an underlying premise. How do we reach those people at all, let alone get buy-in on the underlying principles of the four freedoms or even just one of the four? So the first thing that I would like to address that you brought up is that Zoom was designed with corporate usage in mind. And I have a very hard time as a business owner and as having um, very rarely in my life actually worked for employers and having people that work for me. I have a very hard time accepting the concept that surveillance inside of a company is okay, but not okay outside, right? I find that very shocking. Um, And and, um, the part that you brought up about children being increasingly surveilled uh, by parents, by teachers, there are um, apps and there are now um, universities implementing with sort of good intent in mind, the tracking where um, students spend their time because that's actually a, a leading indicator of them failing courses if they spend like not enough time in the library. And so the sort of idea behind this is that you could then step up early and help them to make sure that they don't fail their course. So lots of sort of like seemingly good excuses to surveil people and make them in the habit of being surveilled from like when, you know, when they first leave the house to when they're in college or in high school studying to when they're, um, um, you know, employees in a corporation that, I mean, like this is so scary and so dystopian in so many ways. And we're just like watching this unfold without even blinking. Like this is normal. Yeah, it's I, I feel safer, right? I mean, now we're probably we're talking about um, figuring out how to track people that have had COVID and that haven't had, and because like you know safety, right? And so we have all of these really good, reasonable things that we do, you know, that create a society where where just like surveillance is is normal. Everyone is surveilled all the time, and that's acceptable. And yeah. This is not going to end well. <laughs> like, this is this is scary. This is really concerning and really scary. The year that open source practitioners necessarily think about issues of how their software is used, or that engineers in companies actually think about this, is unfortunately uh, misguided. Well, this is most of the time not the case. Most of the time. People just build stuff because it's fun. Um, I mean, I've seen that like so many times. Like, oh, I'm trying to solve this problem. This is an interesting problem. Well, what exact problem is it? Oh, how is that going to be used? Do you realize what you're actually building there? Like, I mean, it's it's often the case that we either don't think about it 
don't want to think about it or have heard really good stories. I mean, corporations are really good at telling really good stories to people about why they're building stuff and why what they're building is actually useful. And so um, there is, you know, clearly the education problem is not only with the decision makers using the open source software that we've built, it starts with the engineers themselves. It starts with the people building the software. In my mind, Toby, that's uh, in large part, I think there are two factors here. The majority of software is written by very privileged people who don't have the life experience they need to understand things like safety for a child or safety for a spouse in a bad situation or safety for people whose experiences they have no idea about. But I think that sometimes it can come down to a lack of empathy for the end user, like not thinking about the end user at all, but going back to that, that principle you talked about of technical purity. I can do this because I'm smart enough to do it. And I don't spend any time thinking about the ramifications of what I'm doing because I'm not able to put myself in other people's shoes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's not surprising that a, a lot of people building software today are very young. And, and I don't mean to say that in an ageist way at all. Like I've met a, a lot of very young people that were way smarter than I. But the experience that you talk about is, is certainly a factor I have this image that is probably weird and potentially, I mean, uh, people would probably be upset about this. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, but there's, there's a reason that um, uh, soldiers are young men, right? And when you look at how, you know, the software industry today, it's, it's VCs finding really young men to, to go build software. And, and there's some form of parallel here. Um, in my opinion, it's, it, you know, and it doesn't say anything about the character of these young men, right? I mean, I was a young man at a point in my life, too, and there were lots of things that I ignored, uh, lots of things that I didn't really care about, lots of things that I glossed over, lots of more experienced people whose thoughts and warnings I ignored because that's what young privileged people do. So yeah, I, I think that that is certainly a part of, of the equation. The other aspect that I think a lot about is comfort. It, it is not comfortable to be questioning whether what you're spending your day working on has negative or positive impact on the world. Like questioning the impact of what you do is not funny. Like it's not enjoyable, right? Like it's, it's way easier to uh, sort of drink the Kool-Aid. And then I, I know that's a horrible metaphor too, but it's, it's way easier to go with what you're being told and adopt the reason that you're being told why this is useful as your own reason, rather than to question it. Because Questioning takes energy, it's, it puts you in a sad place, it's difficult, it's risky, and yeah, why, like our natural tendency is, is not to do that. 
And finally, there's there's another aspect, which is that software is is is, is a lever, right? It makes pretty much everything that you do uh, an order of magnitude, a two order of magnitudes more powerful or faster or, or you know, any, any of these characteristics. And the corporations that today own the processes and the systems and the know-how and the knowledge to leverage software have become so powerful that pretty much whatever we do, it actually helps them be more powerful. If you consider uh, GDPR, right, which was this European law, you know, the the idea of which was, well, let's make sure that uh, Silicon Valley giants are more respectful of privacy, right? Uh, It was, you know, clearly sort of fought by those giants for a little while, and then they just embraced it, right? And it has made them a lot more powerful in the process because now you have to comply with, like, all of this these things like it's very complicated to be gdpr compliant if you're handling user data right so it makes it very very difficult for other potentially more privacy aware players to come and compete against uh, these giants and so you know to add to the fact that it's not comfortable to be questioning whether what you're doing or not turns out that you know if you're contributing to open source it's helpful to uh, large corporations like Palantir. If you're not doing open source, then they're just going to do that with closed source software anywhere. It's like there's no way to win to some degree, right? So it's understandable that questioning this is is um, not something you want to do. This is very pessimistic. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I think this I, I, is getting at a an idea that it's all well and good to have engineers who are empathetic and thoughtful. And it's necessary. I won't dismiss that. But if their questions fall on deaf ears, the deaf ears of management, or if they're brought into the conversation when it's too late to change the product based on those concerns, it seems like it wouldn't matter how ethically minded your technical workers are. I see this also as an internationalization issue. Europeans' perspective on what privacy is is very different than, say, um, Americans. And even within America, we've got states that have really different privacy policies. And then you think of China. And going back once again to Zoom, sorry, Zoom, but we've all been thinking about you this week. Most of the engineering department for Zoom is located in China. So the kind of questions that engineers are going to raise are fundamentally different than ones that you would expect to raise, say, if the engineers were based in Europe, where they have to, as a matter of law, think about privacy. As a matter of law, Chinese engineers kind of have to avoid talking about privacy. It's very different cultural issue. It's a very different legal standpoint. It's a very different set of assumptions. You're not thinking that way because it's so taken for granted that as an individual and as a society, surveillance is, as you say, like you start accepting things and that slippery slope as normal. Well, for them, that slippery slope already happened and continues to happen. And we're only at the beginning of something that for them is much farther along and has much more momentum. So I see here internationalization issues that are not solvable by either engineers or users in some other country. We don't have the power, even as engineers, 
to look at that code, rewrite that code with end users in mind more than the original engineers did. So we're talking about somewhere under there is open source, but it doesn't matter from even an engineering standpoint, let alone a user standpoint. We're at the mercy of whatever cultural basis the software was written under. So if we're starting to think of these as internationalization issues, what can we do? To what extent can we change our impact as engineers in order to change impact for end users? It's possible the answer here is Jitsu. Is what? Sorry? Uh, Jitsu, the open source conferencing uh, oh. project. Yeah, that's the one I was referring to as not addressing safety concerns. Um, Fair. There are different ways to look at this. We can look at this from an engineering perspective as engineers and our responsibility as engineers and as open source practitioners. We can look at this as a consumer choice. What do we decide to use as consumers? And I think we can also consider what are the tools that we have? What are the existing frameworks that we have that sort of span these uh, internationalization question as, as you, as you call them. And I actually think that there are a common set of values across different cultures, even if we have slightly different interpretations of them and sit on, you know, different parts of a spectrum. But I think essentially sort of, you know, broadly speaking, what what is good and what is evil is fairly well understood by by human beings ac- across different cultures. Um, and, and we do have an um, an existing set of tools for that. It's like it's the human rights. A lot of what we're talking about now, um, a lot of you know the surveillance questions, uh, the privacy questions, are taken in account by the human rights. Right. You know, that framework for thinking about this exists. So I, th- I think that's that's an important angle is to consider what we can do sort of beyond engineering. Then the other aspect is as individuals in the space, there are times where we can push for things and times when it's harder for us to do so because it puts our own uh, ability to get work, our own safety at risk. And that's also something that we need to consider as as, um, individuals and also be mindful and respectful of people that are in that situation. And then, you know, I think that as consumers, as privileged consumers and, and, and knowledgeable consumers as we are, we can make decisions and we can help others make decisions. But ultimately, I really do think that it's the combination of these different factors and really education at a broader level than just engineers that needs to impact policy and law and, and politics that we uh, need to do. It's, it's, it's broader than just what we can do at the level of strictly tech, in my opinion. So, Ted, we've been talking about some very serious topics and some very nuanced topics, and I really appreciate your perspective on these things. But the overall tone has been one of helplessness, one of how can we do the right thing in this complicated, interconnected web of corporations and governments and end users with privilege and users without privilege, technologies with privilege. Is there something in all of this that gives you hope? 
So what gives me a lot of hope is that these conversations are happening and people are actually starting to talk about this, think about this, organize around this, and do things around this. If, if you think about technology as an, sort of like an accelerator, it can be an accelerator of good as much as it can be an accelerator of, of surveillance and, and sort of bad things. And I just think that we have to be more wary of uh, looking at it as something neutral and be more conscious that it has uh, these different facets and, and just be careful to always push it and always um, drive it towards good and ethical outcomes and be mindful of that. Well, we've come to the end of our show. I'd like to thank Toby for coming on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I, I was uh, very honored to be here, and I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. For all those listening out there, we do have a Patreon, which helps sustain the labor that goes into making this podcast great. If you are able, you can visit us at patreon.com slash greater than code and give any amount that you feel you're able to give. And in exchange, you'll receive an invite to our patrons-only Slack channel, where we have uh, low-volume, high-quality conversations about the same things that we talk about on this podcast. And it's quite a, quite a great community. In addition, we really appreciate companies who step up and sponsor episodes. Each time that we have a sponsor, it means that we can assure that the content is well-edited, and most importantly, that there's a transcript so that you can come back to this and that others can, you know, search and read this stuff as much as possible. We want to give you every opportunity to be able to revisit these conversations and sponsorship is how we do that. So please, if you're interested, ask your company to sponsor Greater Than Code.